0: Conductive wire. and you so electric I had no say when you came so near and just right through me. Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back i 'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I' am joined by Travis Newton, and we are talking all about my best friend's exorcism by Grady Hendrix and we will talk about the movie that recently came out a little bit too, so just sort of general spoiler warnings here for both the book and the movie. But Travis, how are you doing today?
1: Doing okay. Glad to be talking about a book that um, I find pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed this book. I know you recommended it a while ago, back when I was still living in Colorado. So it was definitely at least like six-ish months ago, if not longer. But I finally have had the time to sit down and read it. And I have to be honest with you. We recently talked about Fairy Tale for Chat Cemetery, my Stephen King podcast. And I talked about sure. how much I was sort of struggling with that one. And a lot of it had to do with the move circumstances. But I think My Best Friend's Exorcism is sort of the book that is finally getting me back into my reading groove because I read it in. I want to say about a week, maybe less than a week. I know you and I both read it pretty quickly, and it was a reread for you, a first time read for me.
1: Yeah, it was a reread for me, so it was quicker. And then I I listened to the audio book on this go round just because you know you know I'm busy and driving around, like I, I commute sometimes for work. So if I can get uh, if I can get reading quote unquote reading in while I'm you know commuting or doing the dishes or something like that, then I'll do it because every moment not being productive is a total waste uh, in this economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I-, I breezed through it. Uh, I read this, it was either 2016, the which is the year it came out, or 2017 when I first read it. I don't think it had hit paperback yet when I first read it. So I first started recommending it to people before it had hit paperback. And it hit paperback like really soon after. And the paperback was pretty popular and kind of caught a lot of people's eye because it's got this great cover art. Uh, the hardcover art was very, very different, but more of a subtle idea.
0: Yeah, I have an ebook copy which will discuss a little more in depth later because there are certain things about it that do make more sense having a physical copy for this book but i think i got it for like a dollar 99 or 299 or something on one of those kindle sales and i was like all right i can't really pass this up cuz you had already recommended yeah. it to me and i knew because it was a newer book it wasn't like i was going to find it in the library bookstore for cheap or something
1: exactly yeah hendrix is one of those authors where several of his books do better as physical objects yes talked on this podcast before about paperbacks from hell
0: I might have put that out as a chat cemetery episode but I also don't remember
1: <laughs> well regard regardless we've talked about we've talked about paperbacks from hell and that's such a nice physical object to own like there is an audiobook version of everything that's written in the book but to actually have it as like a physical object is a really nice thing. He's done something similar with my best friend's exorcism he also did something similar with his first novel, which is called Horror Store, uh, where the book looks like an Ikea catalog, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I just picked that up the other week, and it was one of those things, like you said, like paperbacks from hell, where you kind of want that physical copy of it. And this one is definitely more of a novel, but it has things like newspaper clippings and stuff like that, which, hindsight, I should have just read this on my iPad Instead of my Kindle, and it would have been easier to see those things because the Kindle is not in color. And I know sometimes when you get the ebook versions of these things, the images actually are in color. It's just a matter of which devices will show you them in color. And the iPad definitely does. So I probably should have just like switched over to the iPad once I realized it, but I was already. The Kindle was already in my hand, so I just kept reading.
1: <laughs> no worries. I mean, I got all. I didn't get any of that on my latest read because it was all, you know, read to me, thankfully. But um, the book's plot setup is something that's pretty simple. Uh, it's 1988. Takes place near, I think it's Charleston, South Carolina. It concerns a group of four girls. They're in their sophomore year of high school at a place called Albemarle Academy. The four girls are Abby, Gretchen, Margaret, and Glee. The two main characters and the ones that the book really focuses on are Abby and Gretchen. They are best friends. And the book spends a lot of time in the first chapter uh, or two, actually, just defining what their friendship was like when they first mm-hmm. met and, you know, even starting before their friendship and like the sort of first kind of Troubled uh, single digit age interactions. I think there's a birthday party at a roller skating rink that ends up being really important. And it's a great scene. Once that's all established, and it is a fair amount of like prologue and, you know, detail that gets into the, the, you know, inner workings of their friendship. We, you know, meet um, Abby, Gretchen, Margaret, and Glee. They're 16 and they're doing, you know, a lot of just, I don't know, what you imagine like 80s teens are doing. They're smoking cigarettes, they're drinking beers, they're, you know going on road trips and they don't own cell phones because it's 1988.
0: <laughs> yeah certainly a bit of a different era than the one we grew up in. I know by mm-hmm. the time I was in high school I had a flip phone at least so it wasn't the fanciest thing and you know I always love this time period because of that lack of technology though because if you try to write something in the present day, and this is not to say that it cannot be done effectively, but you have to have reasons for like why someone's cell phone wouldn't just work. (laughs) So either it has to die, they have to be in sort of a dead zone, or something else has to have happened to this phone in order for the reader to believe that someone couldn't just call for help, right? And you certainly have that element here where because of the time period, you know, they can't call for help. If they run out of gas, they're kind of just like, oh, okay, what do we do? You know, sure. and yeah. I think that's a fun time period for horror stories in particular.
1: It is. But a lot of that kind of deals with like logistical stuff where it's like, oh, they, they can't call if the killer's chasing them. Rest assured, this isn't that kind of story. What really matters here is that, you know, this being about the time period, it, it's really set in the moral panics of the late 80s. It's yes. really, it's like a whistle-stop tour of all the different <laughs> moral panics of 1988. It is satanic panic. It is Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. It is STDs. It is abuse at school. It is, you know, it's, it's all those sorts of things that were talked about as like dangers to our children at the time. And the book finds really, really organic ways to put each one of those into the plot. Um, these kids, you know, they're n- not a single one of them is like a an archetype. They don't play them as like standard cookie cutter, like high school type characters. There's not the drama kid and the, uh, you know, the the jock and the nerd. It's, it's not a breakfast club kind of situation with these girls. They're all a little bit more complicated. And because it's a novel, you know, Hendrix has the time to explore that. And, you know, since they're complicated, they're not all that Likeable, at least at the mm-hmm. beginning, because you know they make fun of each other, they jab at one another, they gossip, they they sometimes say nasty things that they don't mean. They get you know in in quarrels and they take drugs and all sorts of stuff. And it's not like the novel's full of like debauchery. And instead, what what Hendricks does is he humanizes these characters a lot because yeah, it's high school, you make bad decisions. And he actually creates really human characters with these four girls. And not a single one of them comes across as something that's like, oh, they're just playing to a stereotype or an archetype.
0: I really like that, too, because you can very quickly go down the rabbit hole of stereotypes, especially when it comes to something in a high school setting. Yeah. And the fact that he is able to avoid that when writing this, it just, like you said, even though the characters aren't necessarily always likable... It made them more relatable because, sure, any high school you walk into, you're going to have your jocks, your nerds, the kids who are probably doing drugs, so on and so forth. That is a given, no matter what decade (laughs) you're looking at for high school. And it is obvious that he wanted to focus on more so the experience of these four girls together rather than within that setting. The setting is very secondary to what they're going through. It doesn't really matter that they're in high school. I mean, it does to an extent, but that's not what is driving this. It's not like this is a high school horror story.
1: Right. It's It's not as much of a pastiche as a lot of the stuff that's coming out Directed at young audiences now, that's like, hey, it's the 80s, you know, Stranger Things being the sort of shining example where it's like, hey, it's all the things that you recognize. And we've sort of distilled it down into these very simple, like shorthand type elements. Here, it's a more honest representation of the 80s. And and in doing so, it's kind of an uglier representation. It's not glorified in the way that you might see if it were represented visually. Instead, it's a little bit um, drab. You know, they they talk a little bit about um, the wealth statuses of like the families. Like when we're in the prologue section, Abby and Gretchen, uh, I believe it's Abby's family has like greater financial status and then Gretchen's does not. But then a few years later, their financial statuses like switch. So like in their teen years, Abby is from, you know, a lower financial standing. And then Gretchen's parents are the sort of like rich Reagan Republicans. Yes, <laughs> And that kind of switch. It's interesting to explore how dynamics change over time. What I love is that Hendricks allows these characters to change over time. They go through phases. Um, there's a, a good bit of characterization about Abby where it's not like she's the sort of characteristically like acne-riddled teenager they explain like oh she had acne at one time and now she's self-conscious about her scars so she wears quite a bit of makeup and that's kind of important to her self-image and you know Gretchen when she becomes possessed spo- spoiler <laughs> alert knows to use that insecurity against her to sort of like drive conflict. And yeah, I mean this isn't a a, a book that um that wants to play the Uh, possession ambiguously. Uh, Past a certain point, it's fairly obvious. It's like, yeah, okay, there's a real demon out there doing bad stuff.
0: Yeah. And the way that Grady Hendrix goes about this is not a ripoff of The Exorcist, for instance. Obviously, there are going to be elements that are very similar, but it's not like she's on the bed with her head spinning around all the way. And it's not something that was meant to be, hey, I really like this thing. I'm just going to regurgitate it. Instead, it has a much different starting point than The Exorcist does. And I think that makes a huge difference in how I ended up seeing this story as a whole by the end of it. Because at first, I was a little worried about that. I was like, okay, Is this just going to be some, you know, exorcist fanfare or something? And I'm really, really glad that it was not because there's a unique spin on this that takes it in a very different direction and focuses on very different things.
1: Yeah, a lot of exorcism stories sort of by default end up being religious dramas at their core. Mm-hmm. You know, the conflict is, you know, someone struggling with their faith, as we see in The Exorcist. And then there have been sort of various riffs on that. You know, there's a movie called The Possession that Sam Raimi executive produced, um, where the, the the demon was a, a, a dibuk, which is, a, you know, a, a Jewish demon. And you know, got into elements of the Jewish Mm -hmm. faith. There was a rabbi character, so on and so forth here. Religion is a solid element in the story, but ultimately it is not the element that Hendrix wants to explore to its deepest potential. What he wants to explore to the, to the deepest potential is the friendship and the power of the friendship between these two girls. And that's where, you know, that's why he starts in the narrative where he does. And that's why it takes a, a fair bit of like just background info to get these girls to 16 years old, sophomore year, high school, like where the story really kicks off. Mm -hmm. That prologue is so damn important. And I remember the first read of the book going through this prologue being like, they're putting a lot of time in on this prologue. Uh, Let's get to it, right? It wasn't until the climactic sequence of the book that I understood the value of the prologue and why it was there. And every word of it needs to be there, I believe.
0: Yeah, I also really love that all of the chapter headers are song titles.
1: That was really cute, yeah.
0: And it's very of the time, too, because there's at one point a mention of mixtapes and sort of that thing that has become lost. Obviously, now you can make a playlist for someone and send it to them, and I guess that's today's version of a mixtape or a mix CD or something. So you do still have that, but there's something tangible about it. And you could tell that these were sort of the songs that were highlighting these girls' lives. And it's a very crucial point in time for them because I don't know about you, but I definitely do still listen to a lot of the music that I listened to when I was a teenager. Maybe not all of it, but there are certain artists or bands that I do return to because they hit at that point in my life and just kind of stuck with me.
1: Yeah. I mean, these are the formative years of our lives. and, And Hendrix sets this, knowing that these characters are going to be formed by these experiences. What I appreciated more now than I think I did on my first read was actually starting the novel with a kind of flash forward to Abby and her adult life and She hears something, you know, about a character she interacted with during the whole exorcism plot, hears of their death, and then there's a sort of flashback, and that's sort of how we get into the story proper. But the book comes across like a playlist, like a story told through songs, and it's those kind of items, whether they be physical mixtapes or just songs or things shared between friends, that become... Literally, kind of like totemic, like they, they gain a religious significance or a religious importance between two people. They become sort of like holy relics, holy objects. And, you know, full spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't want the ending spoiled, but like this is the book's argument is that like the bond that people share as friends is just as powerful uh, as a bond between a person and their God. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, could be more powerful because you personally know somebody and you and you love them dearly. The fact that that's what exercises the demon in the end of the book was the moment where I was like, this is something I'm going to reread a whole lot. Like it was it was what made me really love the book was like, ah, I've never seen this done before. Like Hendrix really pulls it off, too.
0: Oh, 100 percent. And this book was just so much fun honestly, even though the subject matter gets very not fun at times.
1: It's darker than I recall. There's some moral panic stuff here that goes way beyond what I thought. And it's icky. Like some of it is like sexually icky. Some of it is like Sam Raimi icky fun. Mm -hmm. There's a whole subplot with- quote unquote diet shakes that gives a character a big tapeworm. And that sequence is so crazy where they're pulling these giant tapeworms out of this girl's mouth. Yeah, it's it's pretty bonkers. But uh where it all wraps up, you know, we're 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 thinking like, oh, it's just a slight riff on the typical exorcism sequence where they've hired an exorcist to come in and there's lots of shouting about the power of Christ and reading a Bible verses. And instead of holy water, they use vinegar and, and stuff like that. You're thinking, oh, okay, it's sort of like a little twist. But then the exorcist runs away yeah. <laughs> in the middle of the exorcism.
0: Yeah, just straight up ditches. <laughs>
1: Bails. I'm out.
0: But then makes a return later that is very important. And I think this part of the book definitely caught my attention more than I expected it to because part of me was expecting the book to sort of just end once the demon is gone, the exorcism has been completed. And it hit me. I was like, there's a decent chunk more of this book left. Yeah,
1: just as there is a big prologue, there's a big epilogue.
0: Yeah, you get the whole court case and you get the fact that, you know, he comes back Back and is like, no, I did all of these things. I kidnapped mm. the girls and I did this exorcism stuff, which is really only half lies because he was there. And as the adult with teenage girls, you know, it's not far from the truth, really. And
1: no, he, he was irresponsible. And, you know, he, he ultimately owns up to what he did, you know, abandoning Abby and Gretchen mm-hmm. in, in their darkest hour by giving the stories basically like a, a really nice bow to tie everything up. He was like, okay, all this bad stuff that happened in the town as a result of the demonic possession, I'm going to pin it all on myself as me punishing myself for abandoning these girls in their time of need. And, you know, after that, you could, with that kind of bow on the story, just end it there. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it, again, it goes back to sort of where we started, where Abby's is an adult and she learns that um, the exorcist had passed away. She remembers seeing him after his prison sentence was done and he was out. There's a brief sequence with that. It's good, good stuff. Uh, the fact that uh, it goes on and on like this actually gives a really... Exceptional amount of closure that we normally don't get in these horror stories. Normally it's like, okay, once the problem is solved, like roll credits, like let's get out of here. Here there's there's a bit more of a literary approach. I appreciate it pretty heavily.
0: Yeah, I'm very glad that you recommended this because one, it was something that was definitely up my alley, and you probably figured as much. And, you know, I had read Paperbacks from Hell. That was really the first. Grady Hendrix thing I dove into. Obviously, he had a co-writer on that, if I'm not mistaken. And that was nonfiction, obviously, because it was literally just about other horror books that are fiction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I was saying, I, I picked up Horror Store, and I'm excited to dive into that because I did flip through that one. And I was like, oh, I can't do the ebook for th- for this one. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk about some of those extra visuals that you get with this. And there was one that I just could not read on the Kindle. So I kind of like tried to skim it. But because of the size of the Kindle screen, it was just like too small to read and too compressed. But for the most part, it's a lot of just these little clippings about things that are going on around town, you have some flyers. And I think it really just adds to The experience of reading this book and certainly makes the case for also having a physical copy of it, or like I had said earlier, maybe just opening it on an iPad instead of a Kindle (laughs) with color. But, you know, I thought the inclusion of that stuff was also fun because even if you didn't read every single word of like the articles that were posted, just the headlines were usually enough to give you a very good idea of what he was going for with, including those things.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit like Watchmen. If you've ever read Watchmen, you know, Mm -hmm. every issue has some like magazine, like fake magazine or newspaper excerpt or an excerpt from, you know, Hollis Mason's book, for instance. So uh, I I think, I think my best friend's exorcism is one of the best horror novels of the last decade. Uh, I think it is really compulsively readable. It's scary, and it has the kind of ending that we don't normally see in many of these kinds of teen horror stories. Uh, it is something like I said; it, they could have tied it up really neatly with a bow, but the fact that they go on with that epilogue and they explore the kind of messiness of you know what happens in these people's lives because of you know this event and just you know normal life stuff happening to them, it 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 is a more complicated and, and detailed picture of uh, of these characters. And I think these characters are strong enough to kind of warrant that approach. I really do like Abby and Gretchen by the end of the novel, even if they're just sort of unlikable and snotty teenagers for a chunk of the story. What teenagers By the end of aren't. it, it's like, these are humans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're teens.
0: So that was one thing I was a little worried about because not a huge fan of yeah children slash teens, teens. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can get very annoying very quickly and they do get annoying in this book which i thought worked really well because i was having a reaction to this like oh my goodness can they just stop being so dumb and annoying and it adds yeah. to it
1: well i think if you if you look at abby's decisions or gretchen's decisions you can understand why the characters are making those decisions. Absolutely. Even if those decisions are to be catty or to do the wrong thing, you understand why they did them.
0: Oh, easily. And I think for me, the fun of reading this was, like you said, it was easy to read, but it is packed with a lot of information at the same time. It's not simplified or dumbed down in any way when they are talking about, you know, what needs to happen for the exorcism and figuring that stuff out it's not like a child's version of the story by any means or you know ya or anything like that it's certainly not along those lines but yeah it has so much depth to it and Grady Hendrix did a fantastic job with the character work and I know you and I have talked King before and this is a big thing I talk about is how well the characters are written, and that is what really draws me
1: into a
0: lot of books.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta love the characters, and uh, this is a, a book or that, hate um, them. I'm fine that. with hating yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Well, as long as they're compelling, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. And one of the things that this book also does, in in a really cool way, and, and you know, Hendricks has done this with um, his sort of pseudo sequel, is uh, really explore the location. You know, he mm-hmm. makes my best friend's exorcism. And the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which takes place in the same general area, uh, he makes them feel like they can't take place anywhere else. He's, you know, the way he makes this story feel on the page is that you couldn't just transplant this to any town, USA. Like it has to be this sort of location because some of the stuff that happens with the demon is kind of tied to the area. It's also a distinctly Southern story. There's a scene where uh, Gretchen, once she is possessed, Her mom, I believe, is having a book club downstairs (laughs) and she starts like scream singing Dixie, the old um, minstrel song. Uh, And so it's like, yeah, okay, there is an element of like satire, Southern culture, you know, the the history of oppression of people in the South. And it is pretty startling. I think this provides an excellent point for us to segue to the movie, which just came out about a month ago Mm -hmm. on Amazon Prime. And the movie does... What I didn't like is it is it kind of just makes it feel like it could be anywhere.
0: It also felt like it played into the stereotypes a lot more than the book did, because you yeah. have Margaret is the jock. You have Glee is sort of the closeted lesbian. Abby is mm-hmm. the one who has to cake on the makeup, which we mentioned was... In the book, but they really, really lean into it in this. And I wouldn't say Gretchen is necessarily like the popular one, but because of everything that's going on with Gretchen, she doesn't necessarily fit into one stereotype. But you see the way the kids look at her when the demon takes over more and she dresses a little different and her hair's all nice and she kind of has more style than she did before. Not that she didn't before, but you know what I mean? And
1: yeah, she sort of embraces a sort of beauty queen mm-hmm. archetype. Right. And yeah, because this is a movie and you know, these, these decisions are understandable because it's a movie. Movies have to use shorthand because they don't have much time to tell their story. So things have to get condensed And scenes and characters can be condensed completely to shorthand. It's like, this is a simpler idea that we can convey very, very quickly so that we can move on to other things. And I understand that movies do have to do that. Um, But the one thing that the movie is completely missing that really shocked me was that there's none of the prologue. Yeah. So we get none of the two girls, Abby and Gretchen, as kids building their friendship brick by brick. The fact that we don't get that makes their friendship feel like it just clicked into existence right as the movie started. And the two girls, um, the two young women that they have playing the leads, which I believe it's it's Elsie Fisher, who's in eighth grade and she's great. I think the other one is Amaya Miller playing Gretchen. Yeah. And I like Elsie Fisher. I'll say that. I like Elsie Fisher in what she pretty much anything she does. She's good. Uh, I don't think Amaya Miller and, and Gretchen were the best fit for one another. I I feel like the writing, um, the adaptation for the movie, which was done by uh, Jenna Lamia, who's also an actress, uh, I don't I don't think it was quite there uh, in their interactions. It just it didn't feel like it conveyed the the depth of the, the friendship that we got in the novel.
0: Yeah, they didn't bounce off of each other as well as I was hoping, because you really feel that when you're reading the book, you're like, okay, these are girls who could like finish each other's sentences and get along really, really well. But there was always this sort of distance in the movie because of where it started. And it just felt like that was missing the whole time, even when Gretchen wasn't possessed.
1: Yeah. And then the direction by Damon Thomas, um, there's like nothing special going on there. As a horror movie, it is not scary. As as a comedy, it is not terribly funny. Uh, it's not exceptionally stylish. It doesn't look very good.
0: The gore effects were disappointing too.
1: Yeah, they were. I, I can tell that Amazon didn't give this a whole lot of money to get made. You know, and I believe it's R-rated. It should not have been. I don't even know um, why. This should have been an e- <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there just may have been something. That one too many f bombs. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. And, and I think reading the book, there is a way to retain the special qualities and the character of the novel and not have it be R rated. To to have it be wider, wider reaching. But you know, the other thing to to think about here is that on streaming services, MPAA ratings don't matter as much. Yeah. You know what what matters is is this being marketed to the right audience. And do they have like the re- the information to know like when and where to see it? And in this case, what I what I found really strange about the way that they marketed this was uh, they didn't come out with a trailer until like a couple weeks before it was released. I had seen the critics screener that they sent out a few weeks before that, and was like, "Oof! I just figured out why they're not marketing this movie. <laughs> it's no good."
0: <laughs> yeah, I kept forgetting about it because. One, I don't watch a ton of stuff on Amazon. I mostly have Amazon for prime shipping. And it's always just been one of those extra things. I've watched some of the original shows. I think I've watched Jack Ryan. I've watched a couple other things maybe that were Amazon originals, but it hasn't been a whole lot, honestly. So I'm not super familiar with the general quality of especially the movies because most of what I had watched had been TV shows. So it was very disappointing. It did not hit anything like the way the book did.
1: No, I I think it would have been a better choice for a series adaptation because there's so much material in the novel to build upon Mm -hmm. and i think even at six or eight episodes even if they had done like half hour episodes like it could have been it could have been so much better just to have more time and and to, to have somebody with a vision behind the camera because the way that this is directed i'm like it's it just sort of happens in front of the camera and I'm like, ah, there's nothing special about anything I'm seeing. It doesn't look good. doesn't feel particularly good to watch. Yeah, huge disappointment. But here's the thing. We still have the book and the book rules.
0: Exactly, yeah. I really enjoyed that. I believe I ended up giving it a four out of five on Goodreads. It's probably more like a four and a half for me, but they don't do half stars on Goodreads. So yeah. I always forget to make- note. Well, not always, but like half the time, if I want to put a half star, I forget to make note of it in the little comment section or whatever. But sure. I really, really like that. And like I said, it kind of got me back into reading again, which was nice because it wasn't that I didn't like fairy tale necessarily. It was just, I had way too much going on at the time when I started to read yeah. it and it took me so long to get through it. But this, you know, reading a book in less than a week is pretty standard for me. So it was very nice to get back to that. And, you know, I am currently reading The Grip of It by Jack Jemk. I'm not 100% sure on that pronunciation, but I'm also really enjoying that. So it's kind of nice to have time to dip into horror stuff that isn't Stephen King as well. Cool. But Travis, I think that wraps up our thoughts on both of these. So First, thank you for recommending that I get around to reading this and maybe less so about watching the movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've read this, I'm eager to, to see what your thoughts will be on uh, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is... You know, like again, instead of The Exorcist in this environment, it's kind of like Fright Night or okay. Dracula in this environment, where it's like a vampire a new vampire moves into town. It's like the Salem's Lot that of this area of like the Charleston Perfect. area in the eighties. Uh, I think you'll, uh, I think you'll like it. I don't know if you'll like it as much as Exorcism, but it's a good book.
0: Yeah, I will probably read Horror Store next just because I already have that, and then I'll check the library for that one, but. I am looking forward to diving into more Grady Hendrix stuff, that's for sure. And I've been kind of slowly keeping tabs on horror authors that I want to read now that I'm all caught up with King and I don't have anything going on there (laughs) that is lengthy to read. But yeah, thank you for joining me to talk about it all too.
1: You're very, very welcome. Thanks for having me on.